Want you to keep that description of what a community should look like as we proceed into the sermon. Uh, before we open God's Word, and you can open there right now to the last chapter of John, I just want to uh, let you know that our, starting next week we have a new sermon series, and that is uh, 12 sermons based on the minor prophets, uh, one sermon per prophet. Uh, and so pray for me again. I do ask that, and not just tongue-in-cheek. I, I, those of you who know me, uh, I really covet your prayers for uh, putting together God's Word and preaching to you. Uh, I take it very seriously, and I think God does too. Um, so this is going to be our next series. Uh, in preparation for that, we're not, we're, just a, a quick note, we're not going to be, I'm not going to be preaching these in the order they're in in the Bible. I'm going to be preaching them in the order they appeared chronologically on the scene. So next week, if you want to read through Obadiah, that might sound daunting, but it's actually just one chapter. So uh, read through Obadiah next week, and and I'll send out an email as to what the uh, order of these are going to be. But today we have before us John's final chapter. If you are there in John, this is the last chapter of John. Look with me at the first verse. Afterward, after the resurrection appearances that we talked about last week, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, well, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say it's the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and he jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far away from shore, about a hundred yards. When they had landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some fish that you have caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took bread and gave it to them, and he did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? 
He answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you desired, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you to where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus in the upper room and said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is it to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is this to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Amen. Chapter 21 is the coda of John's gospel. As Matthew, Mark have their great commission and, and Luke has its road to Emmaus, so John has its coda. But John's is much more robust in a, in a, in a couple of senses that I want to talk to us about today. It's really a teaching chapter. It's a teaching chapter. We see through the actions of the disciples and of Jesus and how he instructs Peter. He's telling us what it means to be a disciple. How you be a disciple. How you follow Christ. But I'd like to take a little license with that and, and expand that today, if you will. And talk to us about what it means to be disciples together. What it means to be a church. What it means to be a healthy church. And I think that there are four prominent features of a healthy church in this chapter. And the first one is, a healthy church is a sharing church. A healthy church, a church full of spirit-filled, regenerate believers is a sharing church. I think that's what we see predominantly in the first six verses here. The disciples return to fishing. They have no luck at catching anything that night. And then they see in the morning a man on shore who tells them to cast their net on the other side of the boat, on the right side of the boat. In other words, this man on this shore is telling them to fish differently than they were. Some bells should start going off in your mind. I think what John is, is drawing on, what John is, is 
is helping us to recall that this is really the bookend of how Jesus called his first disciples. You remember how he called his first disciples, of which Peter was one of them? Andrew was another. He saw them fishing and he said, Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. John wants us. He's inviting us to understand that, to recall that. Fish differently than you have been. Be fishers of men. Cast your nets in a different way now that you are my disciples. Don't cast your nets in the world. Cast your nets in a different way. Be fishers of men. We're called to share our faith, to give testimony, to give witness, whatever term you grew up in. I think one of the marks of a healthy church is that you're a church that shares Christ. That evangelism is a prominent theme in life together. Gary Burge comments when he writes on these He says, as the story unfolds, the disciples have now not only witnessed the resurrection Christ, but they've experienced the spirit of truth. One question remains, he says. What will they do with it? He concludes and says, will they simply privatize these spiritual moments with Jesus? Or will these moments lead somewhere significant? I think that's a question each and every one of us face. What are you going to do with the the cathartic moment you've had with Jesus, that come-to-Jesus moment, that that change, that spirit-filling you, that regeneration, that transformation? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to privatize it? It's just me and Jesus. This is my relationship with Jesus. Or are we called to do something significant with it? I think the the corpus of, of the New Testament tells us we're not to privatize our faith. We are to do something significant with it. Are you going to make... Jesus, your personal secret relationship, no casting, no sharing. Will you go through your entire life not catching any fish for Christ? And let me tell you, I'm as thoroughly reformed as some of you think I am. So I'm I'm not preaching from that perspective. But I am challenging you, and I think this text challenges us. What are you going to do? with your special change moment that you've had with Christ. You've heard it said from this pulpit many times, your relationship with Jesus is intensely personal, but never private. Intensely personal. My relationship with Christ is not the same as yours is. And it's very intimate and very personal, but it's not a private relationship. It's not something to be kept as a secret. How many people here can relate to the story that Lauren Sandy related in Discipleship Journal many years ago? 
as he told about a businessman who went to Billy Graham crusade and received Christ as his savior. The very next Sunday, he went to a local church. After the service, he walked up to one of the elders of the church and said, I was just at the Billy Graham meeting at the ballpark last night, and I went forward and received Christ. The elder replied, that's fantastic. I heard about it. This is wonderful. I'm delighted. Then the businessman asked the elder, how long have we been associated in business together? How long have we been doing business together? And the elder said, oh, I'd say about over 20 years. Have you known Christ that whole time, the man said? The elder said, sure, yeah. Well, I don't remember you ever speaking about Christ to me in those 20 years. He went on to say, I've thought very highly of you. In fact, I thought so highly of you that I felt if anyone could be as fine a man as you and not be a Christian, I didn't have to be a Christian either. How many of us sitting here, and I put myself in this as well, can say, I've known people for five years, ten years, twenty years, and they, I've never, ever said the name of Jesus in their presence. Could this story be told of the people in our lives. Jesus calls us to be fishers of men, churches filled with people that have a prominent, passionate desire to share the hope, the transformation, the peace, the purpose, the meaning, the value that you have felt because Christ chose you. I was at a conference yesterday and one of the guys spoke and he, he talked about the fear that people have of sharing Christ. And he said something that I think will stick with me for the rest of my life. Because I think it's a common fear that we have that we won't present the gospel well, right? That you'll stumble, that you'll stall out, that you'll forget, that you'll say something not right, he said this, he said, nobody has ever been kept out of the kingdom because we presented the gospel in a fumbling manner. But they've been kept out because we've never talked to them about Christ. He even went so far as to say sometimes when he shares Christ that that as he's stumbling, some people will even help him and give him words. Because they know the next logical thing. Here at Southwest Harbor, we have several ways that that the church provides besides you just personally sharing with the people in your life. We have KBC that, that reaches out to the community with the hope of Christ. We have the youth group that, that Anna just spoke of. It is mainly comprised of kids from the community that don't know Christ. 
We do Alpha once a year, where you can bring your... You don't even have to know the words to say. You bring them and sit them here, and, and somebody else tells them about Christ. The prominence of evangelism in any given church will only by, be accomplished as it is filled with people, you and me, that are fishing differently, that are being fishers of men. Evangelism is not the only prominent role that, in our life, though. As our text shows, it's a role, but not the prominent role. A healthy church is not only a sharing church, but also a caring church. And this we see through the lens of dear, dear Peter. Once Peter realizes that it is Jesus on the shore, do you notice that he, he wraps his garment around him and jumps out and swims to shore ahead of the other disciples? He leaves the rest behind. We're, we're encouraged with his zeal. Then when we see Jesus a little later on restoring Peter in that threefold, I love, do you love me, do you love me, do you love me? You see what Jesus is telling Peter. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. Care. Care. And it's interesting when we look back up at the text, you see in verse 10 that, that Peter gets to shore and Jesus sends him back and says, bring me some fish. Go back and help your brothers. And he drags the net up with his brothers. There's an intentional call to care for God's people. We're to be a people that share, but we're to be a people that care for each other. A community that loves and cares for each other. Being that kind of community should be a prominent feature in Christ's church. Caring for your brothers, helping them, not leaving them alone. And that, and this restoration that we see in Peter, points to the fact that the church is not a building but people, a community, a caring, close-knit community. Uh, leave no person behind type of community. Yet that prominent feature in modern day evangelicalism is is not seen very often. I think what we see most in today's churches, a lot, I won't say most, or it's a feature that is often seen in today's church, is the Lone Ranger type of Christian. This Christian that, that takes that, that Jesus moment, that time when they come to them, and privatizes it, and it's them and Jesus. Out there on your own. And this can happen even when you're a member of a church. I found on a blog that listed the five indicators of being a lone-range Christian. First of all, you see and talk to and hang out with other church members only when you're at church. Second indicator, you not really get involved in discipleship, such as Sunday school classes or small groups. You're a lone-range Christian when attending Sunday school or small groups. You mainly... Remain closed off and don't relate what's happening in your life. Four, you're a lone range Christian. If a church member loves you enough to call you out when you sin, 
and you get angry. And it even might even cause you to leave the church. Lastly, you think the church is an activity rather than a community. Paul Tripp says, and we're watching part of his discipleship video in Sunday school from time to time, your walk is a community project. And that's true. You need and are called to be involved in a caring, loving body of Christ. It's exactly what our public reading of Scripture was all about, if you were, if you were engaged intellectually, wasn't it? They, they, they were constantly meeting together. And they had everything in common. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful picture? There's to be a special care and intimacy and love that marks Christ's body. One of our memory verses from a couple years ago is Galatians 6.10. It talks about, therefore, as you have opportunity, reach out and care for people, especially the family of believers. There's an emphasis on that care. As Paul was preparing to go to the Roman church, he prefaced his his letter by telling them the purpose. He said, For I am yearning to see you, that I may impart and share with you some spiritual gift to strengthen and establish you. That is, that we may be mutually strengthened and encouraged and comforted by each other's faith, both yours and mine. He's already anticipating community there. In other words, caring for each other. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's to be the normative, not the atypical. And here at, at, at our church, I don't know if you're visiting, I don't know what it's like in your church, but at this church, we take that call seriously to be an intimate, loving, caring community. And we try and develop that through what we call our discovery groups, what we call our small group ministry. If you looked at this earlier, it said discovering each other. This is the purpose of our groups, discovering each other in the context of applying God's word. The purpose for our small groups is to develop this type of care and intimacy. Develop it so that we care for each other when people are going through things. That we know when people are going through things and can come around them. Third, a mark of a healthy church is a forgiving church. And this certainly we see in that threefold uh, uh, interaction between Jesus and Peter. Much has been said and written about this, this passage of Scripture. The Catholics go to this and, and give yet more evidence that Peter were, was to be the first pope. I don't put much weight in that interpretation. Some people are fascinated with the Greek tenses here and the Greek words of, of love where he says agape twice and philia once that really gets to the understanding of what Peter is, why he reacts the way he does. But what cannot be missed and what I think John is paralleling is that Peter's threefold acceptance or reinstatement 
is to parallel his threefold denial. Here, Jesus is letting Peter know that he's forgiven. He's letting Peter know that he's forgiven. I want us all to sit up and see something very important here. Notice that Jesus came to Peter. That Jesus came to Peter. It was not Peter that came to Jesus and said, Do you forgive me, Lord? Do you forgive me, Lord? It was Jesus that went to Peter. And isn't that the core of the gospel? That's the core of the gospel. Jesus comes to Peter and reinstates him and forgives him, lets him know that he's forgiven. Jesus comes to us. Jesus pursues us. Somebody here prayed earlier, and it was a beautiful prayer, that, that he left, the, the I don't know how it was worded, the palace or the, the comfort of heaven to come down here. Those are great things to meditate on. He gave up so much to come here and be born and walk and, and suffer his whole life through temptation that he willingly took on, yet did not succumb to. He lived the life that we can't live. He fulfilled the law that we can never fulfill. And he took the penalty that we surely deserve for our sin. If you're anything like me, you mourn over your sin when it is brought up to you. You mourn over it. And he took it all on the cross. And he was risen three days to prove that it was all true, to conquer death and sin. He went through all that in order to be able to offer to me and to you forgiveness. He comes to us. We don't come to him. We come, he comes to us. 1 John 1.11 says, He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Isn't that the truth? He comes to us. Romans 5.8 says, we, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He comes to us. And we're called to be gospel-reflecting people in this manner. Here's the application, people. If that is true, if God comes to us and forgives us without us coming and apologizing, if he's the instigator, we're to reflect that in our relationships too. Have you ever thought about that? How many of us sitting here, when you are wronged, wait for that person to come to you to ask forgiveness? They have to ask for my forgiveness. I've got to tell you, that is my temptation. That is my temptation in my marriage. She's got to ask for forgiveness. That's not reflecting the gospel. That's not what what Christ does for us. He doesn't stand afar and go, you have to come to me. He says, no, I'm coming for you. Peter, I want to tell you how much I love you. I want you to know that you're forgiven. And that's how we have to be in our relationships. A healthy church, a healthy body is not a body that waits for other people to come to them. 
they go, they proactively go to people and forgive ahead of time. Forgiving even when not apologized to. Forgiven even when the apology you know is forced and not sincere. Just like Jesus did with Peter. Just like Christ did with you and me. The Christian philosopher and poet and artist and, and a lot of other things. William Blake, he said this. The essence of the gospel is continual, mutual forgiveness. Isn't that how we should be reflecting gospel in our body? Finally, a healthy church is not only a caring and sharing in a forgiving church, but also a committing church. A healthy church is filled with people that are committed to Christ. The late Luciano Pavarotti in an interview before his death, talked about how he became the opera singer that he became. And he said to the interviewer, when I was a boy, my father, who was a baker, introduced me to the wonders of song. He urged me to work very hard to develop my voice. Arigio Pola, a professional tenor in my hometown of Italy, in Italy, took me on as a pupil, but I also enrolled in teacher's college. Upon graduating, I asked my father, should I be a singer or a teacher? My father gave me this advice. He said, Luciano, if you try to sit on two chairs, you'll fall between both of them. It took me seven years of study and frustration before I made my first professional appearance, he says. It took me seven more before I appeared at the Metropolitan Opera. I now think of whether you're laying bricks, writing a book, whatever we choose, we should give our, all of ourselves to it. Commitment, that's the key. Choose one chair. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. That's what he calls me to do. That's what he calls you to do. Choose one chair. In other words, radically commit to Christ. If you look at the interaction between Peter and Jesus after his restoration, starting in verse 18, Jesus gives a veiled reference to how Peter is going to die. He's going to die by crucifixion, it seems anyway, how he describes it. And then by, after describing that, he uses the imperative. He looks at Peter and he says, follow me. You're going to die by crucifixion. Follow me. Think of the radical commitment that is. You're going to die, but take the path anyway. That's the clear teaching of the New Testament, isn't it? Radical commitment to follow Christ. Chapter 9, as I mentioned in Sunday school, is perhaps chapter 9 of, of the Gospel of Luke is perhaps the best chapter to read when you got, want to understand the radical commitment that Christ is calling you to and to me to. There in chapter 9, you can turn to it if you want or just listen. Jesus sends out the 12 to preach, if you remember, and he says, don't take anything with you. Just go. 
radical dependence on Christ, he's teaching them. And then he feeds the 5,000 when they come back, teaching them, listen, I will, I'm your radical provider. And then he displays who he is through his radical transfiguration. I am Jehovah Jireh. And embedded in this chapter are four interchanges with people which call us to this radical commitment. The first one we all know is in verses 23 through 26, where he's talking to his disciples. And in this context of what he's just done and what he's just revealed, he says, if anyone would come after me, and you know it, you must deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. There is calling us to a radical, radical self-denial. It's not deny in some areas. It's deny in all areas of your life. No area is off limits for God's sovereignty. Somebody prayed about God's sovereignty. I, I appreciate that. Is God sovereign in every part of your life? Or do you deny him certain parts of your life? He then goes on to talk about three men that he met in verses 57 and on. And Jesus, and the God's word says, and they were walking along the road. A man said to Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And you know how Jesus replied? Let me test your radical commitment. Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. You want to follow me? It's a radical lifestyle. Then he relates another one. Jesus says, here, there's another man. And the man uh, came to him and, and uh, he said, I will follow you. And the Lord said, uh, and the man said, the Lord called this man to follow him. And the man said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. Sounds like a reasonable request. And Jesus says to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Radical reprioritization. And then the third encounter, still another man. I will follow you, Lord, he said to Christ, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And you know this one. Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. It's a radical new focus. Radical lifestyle, radical priority, radical self-denial, radical focus, radical commitment, people. A call to radical commitment. And when we have a challenge like this in our life, we really react like Peter, don't we? Did you see how Peter reacted after Jesus said, follow me? You're going to die, but take the path anyway. Follow me. What does Peter do? He is us. Look at what he does. Back to John. Peter turned and saw the disciple that Jesus loved was following him. That's John. And Peter saw him and asked, Lord, what about him? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain until alive until I return, what is it to you? This is how we react. And, and I know some of your hearts are reacting like this right now. 
our tendency is always to try and escape the commitment. That level of radical commitment to Christ, we try and escape it. And one of the ways we do that is we do the same thing Peter does. We, we, we feel this commitment, we commit, we start committing, and, and we look around, and people aren't as committed as we are. And we go, hold on. What about Tim over here? Here I'm killing myself, and Tim's not doing anything. What's going? What about him? What about her? Am, am I supposed to be the one, to, the twenty percent that makes this church work? Oh boy, what about them? What about them? That, that's how we react. That's how Peter's reacting. He's trying to say, well, listen, are you calling him to die too? And you know what Jesus' reply is to us and to him? What is that to you? What is that to you? Why are you looking around at other people's commitment to gauge your own? I'm calling you to follow me. This is where it gets personal. He will call someone else to a, to a different, maybe more difficult calling but we're not to gauge our own commitment level by other people. What is it to you? He calls you to a radical lifestyle, a radical reprioritization and focus of self-denial. A radical commitment. And I just want to mention the three ways that I think in the Bible we're called to commit to Christ and then I'm done. And the first one, as you and I both know, we're called to commit ourselves through baptism. That's the first way that we commit ourselves to Christ. That's the public declaration. We say, I stand for Christ and no longer culture. I'm different now. That's the first way we commit. The second way we commit is something we do here two and three times a month. It's the Lord's Supper. There are many, many things going on in the, old, in, the, in the Lord's Supper. But one of them that you have to know each time you take, you're re-covenanting. You're recommitting yourself to Christ. You're saying yes. You're saying yes to Luke 9. And here's the next time you take communion, do this. Yes, I'm radically committed to you. I'm radically refocusing my life. I'm reprioritizing my life. I'm putting you first. And that'll, that'll mean sacrifices. You're recovenanting with your God. So baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the third way we show our radical commitment is by committing ourselves to one another. By joining a local church. That's how you show your commitment to Christ. I know it's not something that's popular these days, but committing yourself through membership of the local church is how you show commitment. Everything vertical has a horizontal expression. You serve Christ, serve one another. You confess your sins to Christ. The Bible says confess your sins to one another. You love God. 
the greatest commandment, love one another. You want to be committed, radically committed to God? Radically commit yourselves through joining a healthy gospel-preaching church and show that commitment. There's something I heard years ago that's come to mean a lot more and more to me over the years. It was told to me, you can't love the head, Christ, without loving the body, his church. And some of you here might be saying, well, maybe not this church, but another church or that church over there. Or I love the church universal, I just don't like the local church. You can't love the church universal. You can't express that. You can't. You can't serve the church universal. You can serve in a local church. You can't use your, your, your gifts that God has given you in the fullest capacity that way. You can't be hurt and forgive proactively the church universal. Those things only happen in the church local. So you want to express your love for Christ, your commitment to him, your radical commitment to Christ? Join a local church. And I think that's what Peter had in mind, and I'll leave it with you in 1 Peter 4. He's writing to the churches up there, and he says this, above all else, listen to this wording, above all else, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gifts you have received to serve each other as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. How do you love each other deeply? How do you commit, show your commitment to Christ? You join a local church. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. I pray that this study in John has been glorifying to you and it has been challenging and encouraging to us, Lord. Spirit, apply it to our lives as you see fit. In Jesus' name, amen.